Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm your host, Alex Hull, and tonight I will be chatting to Maria Walsh about her feature, Remoter Viewing. Maria is a reader in Artist Moving Image at Chelsea College of Arts and the author of Therapeutic Aesthetics. Later on in the show, I will be joined by Chloe Carroll, a writer and curator based in London, who will be telling me about her profile of the artist Sam Keogh. Both of these pieces feature in our October issue of the magazine, which is our 450th edition of Art Monthly. If you head to the website, you will be able to not only get yourself a copy, but you'll also be able to take up our special 45th anniversary offer, which gives you free access to our entire online archive dating back to 1976. Thank you for joining me, Maria. You open your feature, Remote Viewing, with a kind of thought experiment, illustrating a semi-fictional character, the moving image enthusiast. Would you be able to introduce our listeners to this figure? Who is she and how did COVID-19 and the resulting lockdowns impact her life and her career? As you say, she is, a, and I do say later on in the article, she is a semi-fictional uh, character. But like a lot of semi-fictional characters, she does bear a relation to me and my location in space and time, let's say. This feature, I've started it many times in different ways. And also in my head, the feature was, um, I was tasked with the job of, of reviewing art online over the past year and a half. So that was a huge terrain. So basically, th- that was huge. So I think, how do I narrow this down in stages? So one stage is, well, there's lots of stuff online. Galleries put um, all their exhibitions online. But this doesn't interest me. I mean, I don't just flit around in my in my normal uh, life pre-COVID to gallery exhibitions per se. I've got particular interests. So I tend to direct my um, gallery, cinema, venue uh, visits in relation to my own interests. So I thought, well, the feature will have to cover uh, my own interests, really, um, because that has directed, uh, it's mostly directed what I've accessed over the last, um, well, let's say year and a half. I mean, I I know it's a little bit more than that now. But so it was about um, bringing it further down to myself. Now, The first thing I started off with, I looked, it it was quite traumatic in a way to go back to the beginning. I decided to go back to the very beginning of uh, lockdown and the shock, really, of lockdown. And suddenly, um, and the flood of, I mean, this was also, I mean, this was addressed already in um, Morgan Quaintance's feature on, you know, the glut of stuff that was online and it was all saying look at this look at this you can see this you can see that you can see this initially you think oh well oh that's great I can see all this and I don't have to travel anywhere but actually it's the same I found that in some ways I was managing my time eventually in the same way that I would if I was going out in the sense that I'm not going to see everything even if it's there in front of me because I'm just not interested in seeing everything, aside from which, initially, I did start doing a bit of that. And it's um, soul-destroying, actually, because you're just absorbing information. It's information. You're just absorbing information. And, yeah, it's interesting. You might see stuff that you, you know, um, maybe in real life you wouldn't have had access to. However, what do you do with that then? Because you're just sitting at home, you know. You're, You're not actually out there, you're not uh, circulating and meeting people where you could discuss any of these things, really. One of the things that I started this uh, feature looking into was the phenomenon of FOMO, fear of missing out. Because I found that, um, I mean, that was discussed a number of years ago now, there was a big symposium at the ICA. And even that was, um, it had been, you know, discussed prior to that. And that was a kind of, I almost found that that became a symptom in virtual life as well. This idea that oh there is all this stuff oh I've got to I've got to schedule this I've got to schedule that when can I fit this in when can I fit that in so I found well this is this anxiety um, this is not good it's only adding to the general anxieties that about COVID like everyone else I, I suppose I was sort of scrolling through for information for that so everything it just became overwhelming so I thought in my real life I I thought I'm just going to manage this 
in the way that I would if I was, uh, you know, researching artist moving image. I had started off with a whole thing about uh, FOMO and um, it was very interesting. I thought, in a way, I don't want to make general generalizations about a field, about a field of moving image or a field of art or a field of anxieties in, in the context of whatever you want to call it. I might call it cognitive capitalism, but late capitalism anyway, and the whole field of ethics that are being you know, harnessed for capital. I thought that's just adding to this kind of generalization. So I thought, well, actually, what interests me is how I, how I can set up um, my own kind of parameters. And I read this, I don't even know where I read this, but while I was thinking about all this, I read this lovely quotation in something totally unrelated to art. I don't even know where I read it. But it was to do with how the only way of navigating in an overwhelming world was to nurture a passion. (laughs) So I decided this is how this feature is going to begin. It's going to begin with me nurturing my passion, but in this kind of fictional alter ego persona. I was wanting to say this is not about the field, or it's not about the general. It is about a particular viewer uh, and a particular particular practices of viewing and what the fictional she encountered. And these encounters allowed her, and then these encounters allowed me, so using this kind of um, alter ego, the fictional encounters she encountered, uh, the real encounters that she had, the fictional per- persona, allows me then to actually make a few tentative generalizations, but they come from that location rather than from above. They come from the ground of, of the virtual viewing. You mentioned there as well Morgan Quaintance's article from last year, pointing out the kind of institutional frameworks from which this endless stream of content comes from. But I guess what's nice as well about your article is that you you look at um, outside of these sort of more institutional contexts that are just, I think even Morgan says in that piece that, that it's institutions always trying to stay relevant, mm, which mm. they quite often fail to do. You also talk about Boris Groys's idea of a spectacle without spectators, which is from his Comrades of Time essay from 2009. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit more and how Groys's idea relates to the conditions of being online today? I mean, now it's some time ago, and even though I've read that essay a number of times, I must admit, I can't really remember much about um, his essay. I went back to that essay uh, because I thought I knew it had something in it uh, that spoke to this, uh, particularly this thing about what I go on to talk about, seeing as how um, things have moved on. So I was looking at blended, what what in, in certainly in education, they call them blended learning you know so I was I was sort of like punning on that really hybrid or blended models of uh, viewing which can be learning as well but not in the strict in the institutional sense um, it can be more like a just as an aside I guess in some ways even though you know I'm a professional I'm also I like to um, treat things in a way uh, certainly in this article it's obvious I you know I've, I've read that essay before I, you know I've been around so to speak but also, there's a sense in which, um, in this feature, I'm kind of charting a sort of. It is fictional because it can't because, as I say, I, I've, you know, been in in this profession for a long time. But I'm also um, charting a kind of autodidact kind of approach, which resonated very well with one of the first examples, the um, School Without End, Scuola Senza Fina, film from uh, 1976 which was released by um, Brighton CCA's Front Room Film Club. So to answer your question more directly, then I was thinking about these kind of blended, this idea of blended models of viewing. I knew that there was something in that essay to do with the glut and to do with judgment. And that's why I didn't want to focus on galleries and more more sort of specifically commercial art institutions. Obviously, all of the examples I have have links to these, but they're not exactly, their main remit is not uh, to sell art. When I went back to that essay, what I found was, and this was the key thing, which I can just read out perhaps for listeners, 
spectacle without spectators. That is the condition generally, not just of being online, but it's kind of a, a general condition that's exacerbated online because there's so much stuff. Who's looking? Why look? This was one of the questions I was asking myself in this feature to dictate to myself what kind of parameters would I put around myself in order to cultivate this singular passion that I mentioned at the beginning. I don't know if I kept it in in the feature, but I was calling it um, a kind of a rudder, that you need a rudder. You can't just sail off. If you sail off, what you end up doing is like you can be looking at gallery stuff. You can be checking your emails. You can be everything is just on the same plane of a kind of flatness. So basically, and he says that in relation to, um, and I think this is still relevant today, you can just add more things to his list, which I did actually, I mean, I added Instagram, but he had Facebook, YouTube, I can't remember if he had Twitter or not. But what he did say was that all of these kinds of communication networks, you know, there's a, a vast, already he's talking about the immeasurable quantity of artistic production and its dissemination on these platforms and it's occupying you know the same space as i've just said as networks like facebook youtube twitter instagram and there are loads of others you know i mean i just i'm not going to even go there they're they're being invented all the time i mean and you know i thought well no you can't talk about tiktok because you you're not looking at it you're just reading about it so this is why what i mean by i have to have this fictional um protagonist here as a rudder to guide me through without going off into this kind of um, spectacle without spectators. Because the spectator, I mean, the spectator is in some ways a sort of a, a more modern phenomenon. And one might say we're not spectators anymore, but users and prosumers. The spectator is someone who concentrates, stays with something and tries to understand how that thing is not necessarily addressing them, but is addressing someone. Um, it could be you, but it might not be. I like to um, find places that will um, put me in that position of actually concentrating, or even if I'm distracted, that I'm distracted in a way that is still concentrated in the sense that I'm giving my attention. I mean, I won't say what I watched last night, but... Um, I did watch something which was <laughs> art-related, and it wasn't addressed to me. However, and so I wasn't um, a grit, you know, spectator. However, I was still a spectator because I was giving it my attention to understand who it might be addressed to or what it was addressing. To conclude then, and this is the quote, really, that photos, videos, texts, they're all indistinguishable from any post-conceptual artwork, including time-based work. And time-based work, of course, in some ways, one could argue that unless you think about how you want it to be presented, mm -hmm. it can totally just get absorbed into the whole conglomerate. And in fact, unless it's presented in a, in a particular way, again, this I'm thinking about spectatorship as something particular. I mean, you can still be a user, but it's, it's something that is, is about a different kind of attention than the um, grabbing of your attention that all of these things are trying to do all the time. So basically, yeah, I mean, he go, he has his own beef about judgment, which is not interesting to me. I'm not interested in making a judgment about whether something is, is good art or bad art. But I'm interested in how, um, how say, particularly uh, time-based work can find ways of presenting itself online that is a bit more expansive than just circulating, than just being the Oh, here's another one. Here's another, you know, oh, he, look at this. Here's an, so and so is going to be on this week, or this is going to be on for a, a few weeks. And then it's like you think, well, okay, but I've forgotten about it already. The key thing that structures this, which I, you know, I didn't, again, I didn't want to make generalizations about, but it's to do with the event, something that is structured and makes you think oh I want to commit to this and spend time with this even if it's not all addressed to me some of it wasn't some of it was uh, in terms of my interests I mean so really it's about 
yeah, who is or what is being addressed. So I think the event, I liked the um, formats that had some kind of event-like structure, and that's what I kind of focus on in the article, mm. um, rather than judgment, which is what uh, Groys, uh, I think, looks at. You talk about transmissions, which obviously took place on Twitch, which I think you mentioned in the article is, is owned by Amazon, I know. which I, I had no idea, but... I'm obviously not surprised. <laughs> I know. Um, well, this is the thing. All of these, all of these things, like uh, all these fun things that people do. But and you see, the other thing I suppose Garois is he's he's looking. I mean, he's it's 2009, but like now, artists are everybody's doing this uh, material stuff. You know, all of these platforms allow everyone to be creatives, and so it's really about just economic structures the institutional structures in which these things are funded or distributed twitch tv i know i mean i'm i don't know if you looked but i one day i just went for this uh, research i mean i didn't know who owned it but you know it's only anything amazon and google are mostly behind everything or people who used to work for them <laughs> and um one day I just went on uh, just cold, just to, as if I was just didn't know what this hadn't been on this platform before. So just without the, you know, uh, the schedule, the transmissions schedule. And uh, it was mind blowing. I mean, in, in uh, not in a good way for me. I was frazzled. I guess it's about niche cults, really. You can look at anything. You can find anything. It seemed to be an accentuation mm. in terms of. Um, distraction. I mean, there's there's a lot of discussion, uh, which was something I thought again. I didn't really want to make generalizations about, but wanted to kind of do it more in terms of examples. But this this dichotomy between distraction and attention um, in the attention economy, um, even though a lot of the things I look at in my article, this idea of the event has to do with intensity. It seemed to me that the Twitch TV platform was all to do with quick hits, really like another kind of intensity. So I think that there are maybe different kinds of, I suppose, affects and intensities. Could you maybe talk a bit more about transmissions? Like what form did it take um, just for our listeners? And you also call it one of the most distinctive online curatorial events in the year of living with lockdown, which for you had a weird poetry about it. Yes, well... What I thought was uh, unique about it was the um, how it used online space in a way that actually did also. Uh, it, it, I don't think it was deliberately harking back to um, analog TV or or cable TV. However, it did use. I mean, I'm very keen on things that uh, that in the sphere of art use kind of televisual I think televisual viewing so it was interesting because it was on this frazzling sort of I don't even think that's a verb but this really fizzy kind of platform Um, however it reminded me of it's not like it was like this but I was charmed by this kind of televisual format and I think I liked this kind of juxtaposition of the televisual on virtual space because this is not something it's not about watching tv it's the televisual as a descriptor would be to do with the kind of the episodic and scheduling being scheduled like this was you know literally when it was it, you know there were a number of i think six in each um six episodes in each uh session which i think there's been three um, in fact, one of them, the last one is still going on. I think there's one more left, one more episode. So this idea of uh, the episodic and bringing together, I think, different formats. So I like this coalescence of the virtual and the televisual. And then it did remind me, um, and this is this is interesting in a in a in a post internet or in an internet uh, context because prior to the internet. Um, the artist, the um, American artist, Alex Bagg, she actually uh, created, I mean, I don't think she was the only one that did this, but certainly this is the only one I have, have looked into in any, um, to any extent. She went on to create a TV show uh, in collaboration with another artist, Patterson Beckwith. Um, and it ran for um, three years. They produced a weekly 30-minute TV show called Cash from Chaos. 
and uh, later on it was called Unicorns and Rainbows. And you can still see um, some of these online. And uh, they have this idea of weird poetry. Alex Bagg and um, Beckwith's show, it was on at uh, 2.30 a.m. So it was like people who were kind of insomniacs or on shift work or just generally hanging out late. So it was it was kind of like strange things like tarot card readings, spoof callbacks to companies, looking at pets, little making little documentaries about McDonald's. And in a way, transmissions, some of the things, not all of them now, but certainly some of the ones I looked at had this kind of cult uh, rituals, really. So I, I found this very intriguing and gripping. Also, it was repurposing actual television. They were all curated by different artists and writers, even though the whole project is conceived by uh, three, Anne Dufo, Hannah Nurali and Tai Shani. They would distribute the curation to different, you know, they would appoint different artists and writers to host the different uh, episodes. They did some particular episodes as well. For me, being interested in this kind of coalescence of the televisual and the virtual, it was very interesting that um, there was also a lot of repurposing of actual television shows, like um, comedy shows like Tommy Cooper. And again, this is very much to do with a kind of, and of course, things from YouTube, which of course, these things are on YouTube now. So there's a kind of, I don't know, I don't like these catchphrases, but I'll just use them anyway, digital natives or whatever, know all of these uh, things from YouTube. Um, and they and sort of new cults build up, or, you, know, you know, new kind of uh, communities build up around fandom, around these kinds of clips. Yeah, so I found that intriguing. And it was also to do with time then for me. Obviously, I'm not a digital native. And some of the, the clips from television would have been things I might have seen as a, as a young child and didn't really know what they were <laughs> because television was always on, you know, even if you weren't watching it. It was intriguing from different perspectives, really, to do with historical time in art history and also personal time in terms of how things that one might have encountered in a state of unknowing uh, become cultic phenomenon that create new communities of fans around them. The other thing uh, which was interesting, and I talk about distribution and spectatorship as kind of coming together, is that some of the extracts from uh, other cult and niche films that were also included in the programmes, as, as well as artist work. I mean, it was the idea that artists, it was a way of, of, of supporting artists to actually make work during uh, this time when a lot of gallery, you know, galleries were closed. Everyone got paid and some artists donated their pay to different charities. I mean, this was part of the thing. So it was a kind of an economic support structure as well as an emotional support structure. What I found as well was that so I was distracted, but I was attentive at the same time. And in the sense that sometimes I would actually look up some of the clips myself later on, or even during the show sometimes, um, because sometimes there, there might be a blip and there might be a bit of downtime. And, and if there was a break, or, or I might kind of queue up the URL ready to look at it later on, because I found uh, some of the clips very intriguing, particularly to do with performance, uh, performers, not art performers necessarily, but general performers, stuff that you can find on YouTube, mainly around music. You also draw a comparison between the format of the show of transmissions and the surrealists and how they sort of interacted with cinema. The surrealists, some of them, had this thing about movie theatres in Paris anyway. It was very cheap and films would run on a loop all day and you could just walk in and out of them apparently i can't remember now who wrote about this but it has been written about in terms of uh, this kind of it's quite well known in cinema as, as a kind of an alternative spec form of spectatorship um, a kind of a drift you can drift between one film and another it's not like you're a busy bee going from you know one film to another it's about the individual really in their own kind of hallucinatory dreamlike framework 
you're building a kind of your own sort of dream, really, out of the fragments. What I was describing there about how some fragments in, I mean, this these were already curated like fragments. So it was almost like the artists and writers uh, were creating their own kind of fragmentary associations, which a viewer would also make other kinds of associations. So I was talking about their kind of associational mode of spectatorship, dreamlike, um, not in relation to just one thing, but it's like you're making a patchwork in the way that dream imagery is not located in one space or time, but is kind of amorphous. I enjoyed the overall thing because um, there was this sense of a kind of sensory and associational kind of quality that you were in this kind of dreamlike space. It was in relation to what you were looking at. It wasn't dictated by it. And it just created a different kind of interface, a different kind of intermediate um, space, really, of dream which is not usually what one might think about in relation to online viewing. The way it was curated and this, the, you know, the short, they were all short, like, the, and there would be ad breaks. Some people used them and uh, used a lot of graphics from early TV or early film or, you know, early film would be inserted. So it had a television, the televisual format. And, you know, you knew it was on for an hour and you could watch it for the hour but you could flit in and out as well of the different things and different moments whether it be an artist's work or a film clip could take you on different journeys so that's the kind of surrealist the surrealists used to do that in real life in relation to cinema there's something much more digestible as well about it being sort of episodic and an hour long as opposed to these film marathons which Absolutely. you talk about as well. <laughs> because the film marathon is is like it's hard work i was interested in platforms where you would give time to a thing but you wouldn't be responsible for doing all the work <laughs> because that's just exhausting for instance like in the the first event was like you could say it had a pedagogic aspect to it mm -hmm. in the sense that they were uh, the films were particularly oriented around uh, feminist activism from the 70s and 80s and they would be accompanied by texts but it wasn't grueling. It was very carefully curated. Other people had done the work and you were able to digest short things to go along with your viewing that had a kind of a, an, a life enhancing aspect to it, not a deadening effect. I did attend a lot of other things that just deadened me, long, grueling things where I was tasked with being the spectator and taking on the burden of the world, actually, particularly in relation to, I have to say, even though they did some fantastic things, it's not so it's not a, a dig against them, but efflux uh, marathons, I mean, and even the screenings, the screening slots were very much about here's this thing and you should watch it because it's about issues of today. One film could be an hour and a half. When you're in the space online, well, there's other, aside from the fact that there are other things demanding your attention, or there are things that are more attractive uh, for your attention, there's also the sense in which, what are you going to do with all this, with all this stuff? It's a lot to task the, the spectator with the responsibility for their own viewing. It's, it's actually just hard work. It's a kind of an effective labor without any, um, community or without any the community seems to be top down rather than bottom up whereas I felt with transmissions it was more interwoven you could you could weave your way in and out of it and it wasn't here this is here you could have a look if you want if you know if you want to um, there was a sense in which I, I do mention about where uh, there was a, a mitigation of the labour of viewing, the sense that you were with others viewing. This is what I mean by that, that it's not just you, you take on the burden of the issues that are being presented in a lot of documentary art film. You know, there's a, there's a great trend of documentary in art cinema, which I think needs more of a context than just showing it.
this is why I was intrigued by the um, event I went to, uh, which was actually to launch an issue of the White Review. And there was a documentary. Uh, I mean, it was about 50 minutes long uh, by Languid Hands towards a Black Testimony prayer protest piece. What intrigued me about, about this was, about I was thinking about attention, is that because of bandwidth, the event was on Zoom, but when you got into the event, then you were told that, well, actually, we're not going to screen the film on Zoom because of bandwidth and the amount of people that are attending. But here's a link in the chat, and it's on Vimeo. I'm putting it slightly crudely for, for time. It wasn't this blunt, but you know, you can, you can go and watch this yourselves now and then come back into Zoom for a further presentation and discussion uh, between the artists. Now, initially, I was thinking, well, oh, I've just come on to this event and now I've got to go somewhere else. But I actually found it transformative. So I clicked on. I thought, well, I'll click on anyway and see how I go. But I'm not I'm not sure. But there was something about the energy of because everybody was already in the Zoom boxes. So there was a sense in which there was this kind of audience and you could see, you know, who was there, so to speak. I just had this sense that everybody really was doing the same thing that I was, that we were all watching this and that in 50 minutes to an hour, we'd all be back in Zoom. And that is actually what happened. So I found that transformative um, because it meant that one was not alone with the burden of one's spectatorship, but you knew there were others who were in this group who were also looking and also afterwards did come back. And in fact, I think more people were actually in the Zoom meeting. There were even a few more than, you know, so it's not like people just went away, which can sometimes happen in real life. You know, I've been at things where um, people would say something like, oh, you have to do this chore or something, you know, and then people would drift off and not come back. So this was really interesting, I thought. It's to do with the idea of more gazes than one. The idea of a kind of community of gazes actually creates an energy and that this could happen online, I thought was fantastic. So I'd like to welcome my second guest to the Art Monthly talk show, the writer and curator, Chloe Carroll. Chloe, perhaps we could begin by you telling me who is Sam Keogh and when did you first encounter his work? Sam Keogh is um, an artist working in London, originally from Ireland. He works with a sort of sprawling mass of materials um, often found often sort of trash and rubbish and detritus and works them into these sort of fantastical assemblages and performs within them and often his performances are sort of projected back into the assemblages and installations um, and sort of live in them in their sort of further life. I first encountered his work actually only during lockdown last year during a um, transmissions broadcast. It was a short sort of video work entitled, um, if you are reading this, get ready to meet me in your dream tonight, tonight in capital letters. And uh, in it, you sort of see um, the camera cast its eyes over um, what he says is his like childhood bedroom, which is now a box room sort of uh, full of stuff that has no other sort of place in his parents' home. And you see this mattress on the floor and this uh, sort of bizarre assembled figure on the bed lying down, uh, made of all sorts of bits, which you can sort of recognize from his previous installations and sort of covered with, you know, with mugs and a sort of bowl with a banana skin in it and wires everywhere and these sort of like slime trail looking things. And he, he talks quite determinedly about how he plans to be in all of his friends' dreams to escape isolation, to go beyond his friends' dreams to appear in everyone in the world's dreams by the end of lockdown. And talks about sort of the methodology of that, that as a sort of escape from a situation. I love the title of that work. It really mm -hmm. makes me think of those, you know, those spam or chain emails you used yeah. to send around as a child <laughs> or teenager. And you'd, you'd think, oh, my God, if I don't send this on to a thousand of my friends <laughs> who I don't know, some creepy yeah, Victorian child, <laughs> yeah, someone's going to be at the end of my bed. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It is. It does sort of figure as a sort of a spam, almost a threat, because he sort of he, he speaks about it like an incantation. And he, he sort of talks about in the video work, like how he's going to say, he says, I said emphatically like that and I repeat it. And it's beginning to work. It's like a 
non-consensual um, dream appearance almost at some point. Like a sleep paralysis demon. <laughs> <laughs> so you open your profile with a description of Sam's recent performance at Southwark Park Galleries. For our listeners and anyone who missed out on this event, would you be able to describe the performance for us and maybe talk about his work in that show? So the show um, centres around a series of games by Hideo Kojima called Metal Gear, Metal Gear Solid. And um, all of the artists sort of respond to this quite dark, uh, militarised video game world. And Sam's work in that began as a performance, which was then recorded and you can listen to it back in the space of the exhibition, um, sort of next to like the costume that he wore during the um, during the performance, which is quite sort of typical of how his work lives on after a initial performance, almost like a sort of ghost of haunting that space still. And in this performance, he dresses in this sort of typically makeshift way, like the character Solid Snake from the um, game, who's this sort of very like low voiced military man, very sort of emotionless. But here he sort of, he does like spill out into a sort of fragility and naivety. He talks about how he's lost. He's speaking on his radio to his um, sort of colonel saying that he's lost temporarily, physically, psychically, um, and he doesn't quite know who he is anymore. He has this sort of, um, this identity crisis in the middle of this crowd. He's shuffling around under a cardboard box like you would in a video game where you're sort of playing stealthily, trying to avoid the sort of the the pacing guards. And he throws the box off his head and realises that he's in a gallery space surrounded by an audience of sort of art viewers and sort of panics and doesn't realize, you know, I, I thought I was in a military base. I thought this was a, a missiles um, depot and sort of runs out of the uh, of the gallery. And it was great because the audience followed him round like in a sort of a snake procession. He would run out of the, the garden outside the gallery and everyone would just follow him round back to the entrance where he'd re-enter the gallery, sort of run through the spaces a bit and then end up back in the garden to do the sort of next bit of his speech. It sort of wove together all these ideas of the sort of military industrial complex with hauntology also relating to haunted houses and I guess climate change, like the idea of burning oil, releasing these ghosts, like these thousands and thousands of ghosts into the ether to sort of haunt the space where the fossil fuels were burnt, leaving a sort of a ghostly residue he talks about. Like a lot of his work, there's a sort of combination of pop culture reference a sort of spooky eeriness or like a cult spirituality and quite like solid real infrastructural concerns you mentioned this crisis of identity there in your profile you talk about how this kind of emerges as like a almost like a multiplicity and like clones and twins and you talk about how his work is frequently inhabited by person I with fraught relationships to the self and its surroundings. Mm-hmm. So where else does that appear in other of his works? For instance, there's a performance which also involves speaking about this um, Winchester Mystery House, which he speaks about in um, the performance at Southern Park Galleries, but also in another one called Integrated Mystery House. Mm-hmm. And in this one, he's this lost space traveller who believes that he's hallucinating his audience And he's sort of trying to find this solid ground of like, is he speaking to real people or is he one person speaking to all of these hallucinated people in the audience? He's trying to figure out sort of how to present his findings, um, like this very rigorous research and sort of becoming almost like neurotic with loneliness and aloneness, solitude, because he's woken up on this spacecraft early when everybody else is asleep. So that's sort of one instance of it. Another one, Captain Cadaverine, he sort of plays a similar person. And again, he's very sort of fraught and confused with sort of where he is and what he's doing. And, you know, he doesn't know what everything's made of. He doesn't quite know how to describe the things around him. As much as his characters often seem a little bit sort of lost and um, sort of confused in their personhood, what I find very interesting about his work is that he has this whole sort of rotating cast of characters often they reappear but they don't feel scripted like fictional characters I wouldn't say he's like an artist who performs in such a way that he's embodying a cast of characters but they just sort of seem to like it's hard to pull him apart from them because as much as they're performances they're not theatre they're not theatrical 
they seem rather to sort of spill out of him. Mm. I saw one of his performances at Goldsmith CCA. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how when he began, it kind of felt like he was recounting an actual story where he was coming from Berlin Airport and then it slowly becomes more and more absurd. So yeah, maybe tell us a little bit about that performance in that show. So as you said, he's sort of, he's recounting a journey and it's performed in front of this backdrop, which is one of the, um, well, one part of the installation, which is shown in the basement of Goldsmith's TCA, um, which are these sort of giant um, cartoons, cartoons in the sense of preparatory sketches for tapestries, sort of one-to-one, real scale, quite dwarfing and huge. They're all strung up in the basement and they are covered with all these paintings and sketches which are then sort of taped to them with this blue painter's tape, looking like a sort of a new kind of seam, um, often sort of gaping in a sense that they could be they could be moved around, they could be picked up and put somewhere else. Um, and he exploits that in the performance as well, where in preparation for his performance, you could see him literally assembling it while the audience sort of stood around in anticipation. And it all derives sort of from this idea of the land of cocaine. The, the sort of base for that which he uses is Bruegel's The Land of Cocaine where there are these sort of sprawled figures around this tree and it's a land that's abundant in food and pigs walk around with knives already stuck in their sides so that you can carve slices of ham out of them. Eggs walk around with spoons coming out of their sort of cracked shells. And it's it's a very sort of luxurious but somehow also quite bleak vision. It's not colourful in the sort of like Candy Mountain, I guess, sort of uh, neo-pop uh, cultural way of thinking about these uh, sort of lands of eternal feast it's very earthy and brown and they look very sort of um sluggish and bloated on the ground there it's sort of uh tension between between luxury and almost a sort of torture but he takes this as a jumping off point to think about modes of being sated and reveling in that sort of satedness that bloatedness that congestion and sort of allowing yourself to you know, imagine what's it like to to be in this sort of utopia of no work and all food and, and uh, plenty. Um, and so in the performance, he um, recounts his journey back from Berlin with the work, which is all sort of these, as I mentioned, on sort of paper tapestry cartoons, folded and compacted into a suitcase. This is something that's come up in other works as well. In, in Plague Doctor, he talks about, um, it's a, it was a performance at the Pompidou in Paris, he talks about having to transport this uh, this assemblage of, of like plastic skeletons that he's found in various pound shops and the sort of fear of going through the border with that, these suspicious materials. And you get this sense that in a lot of his work, there's a sort of an element of it which can be like packed up and, you know, you can pack up and run. So he talks about this journey where he gets stopped by customs officers in the UK but it immediately unfurls into something very surreal and fantastical. And the customs officers are a unicorn, a pig, and a giant talking clock. They appear sort of from the work. Um, so the pig is from the Bruegel painting, um, which he's also got sort of ceramics of and drawings of in the basement downstairs. Um, the clock is sort of a cartoon um, from, I think, the 1960s. I could be wrong on that. And... Uh, the Unicorn is from the um, series of tapestries, The Lady and the Unicorn, um, which the work also talks a lot about or takes a lot from. The narrative takes you through this interrogation process, um, which becomes immediately absurd as he starts to sort of gaze at the ham and longing and mouth watering. He wants to take a bite out of the, the pig officer's ear. He eventually turns to sort of violence and lops off the unicorn's horn. And it sort of it has something in it about, I guess, the sort of the the fantastical as this like vehicle of menace, as much as it is of liberation. And I think that's a tension which comes up a lot in his work. Yeah, I also must say he is an incredible storyteller and performer. Mm-hmm. Like it was amazing. I feel like it's so rare to see that so often. I don't know. It's just. He was so captivating and like he he just really seemed to like as a performer really seemed to control the room almost. It was, it was like a stand up comic. Mm. He he like 
there was a kid I remember in the audience who was totally engaged the whole way through and sort of mm. laughing along. And it wasn't a short performance either, but it's mm. rare to see a child who doesn't get bored and start running around and mm. making mischief. It really shows how much of an amazing kind of character creator he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as I said, it's almost like these aren't characters. These mm. are sort of different personalities from him uh, rather than things that are created. But he also, he was reading off this um, sort of scroll, which I really loved, which was a sort of very makeshift taped together. Yeah, a scroll, like a, a parchment, um, which he was unrolling and reading from from throughout the performance, which reminded me of something I wanted to talk about was his mode of editing, which he told me about, which feels very at one with these collages at the CCA. Um, he was talking about how he will often write out these scripts on Google Docs, say, and they'll be sort of winding lengthy in the same mode as his narratives. He'll print them out and he will cut out different sort of units or fragments of this text and then stitch them back together in different orders with sellotape. Um, It's a very sort of physical material process. And I think that's something that really stands out is that even when the narrative is sort of coming from a spoken word, which is very engaging. It feels very much part and parcel of that collaged work behind him or of the work that it grows from because it comes out of that same material process. Yeah, that makes me think as well of like, I mean, it's mainly a game you play with a child, but I'm sure it was like the surrealists almost came up with it where it's like you fold a piece of paper and someone draws the head of a body and then someone else and then it's like... The exquisite corpse, is that what yes. it's called? Yeah, then, yeah, it's very much like that. It sort of it allows room for, I guess, like narratives to shape shift and take different forms, and for these sort of gaps and seams to appear, and different things to sort of grow out of them, like you know, weeds through cracks. And that, like, he was reading from a similar script um, for his performance at Southwark Park Galleries, um, which at one point he sort of it fell out of his pocket, and yeah, everybody sort of watched him run around frantically with these uh, these masks over his face, trying to find where it might have fallen. But it's sort of, it's it's perfect. It's like these these little sort of slippages and errors seem to sort of make for a, a real, something in his performances which isn't entirely performed feels almost spontaneous. You know, you might see him at one point lose his place in the text and sort of scramble to find it. Um, and all those things sort of amount into a work which is actually kind of profoundly affecting as you watch it. You're, you're feeling like at some point you might even be watching a rehearsal for a thing. Um, you know, in Integrated Mystery House, he talks directly to the audience about, you know, so here I would say in like, a, you know, this is a presentation draft with notes. And so I begin with a preamble here and this would be narrativized in a more engaging way, actually. You sort of, you get this sense that you're not seeing a finished product. It's not alienated from you, the viewer. You're sort of getting a glimpse into something pre-performance. Am I correct in saying that the performance is being then projected because there aren't any more CCA performances now, are there? How is it now? I'm actually not into? sure. Because I know that there were there were like three performances scheduled, but mm. I don't know if it's being projected back. Um, I imagine it might be because that's the usual format. And I hope it is because it feels like such an essential part of the work. And that's another thing that's great about his performances. It's not supplementary. It's not an add-on. It's like a material constituent. When you come down the stairs into the gallery of the CCA, the first thing you see is that jesmonite sculpture of a person mm-hmm. on the floor. And it li- <laughs> it actually looks like someone has collapsed on the floor right? of the gallery. And it's so spooky because it's just slightly smaller than human scale, mm. just slightly. Mm. And it's like quite sort of flat on the ground as if it's like sort of merged with it or melted with it. Yeah, and that figure is actually taken directly from one of the Bruegel paintings. It's um, very earthy colours on top, just like in the painting, but underneath there's this sort of multicoloured psychedelic underbelly, which, yeah, so I recommend sort of get down on your knees and take a peek. So another recurring motif that you've we've talked about a bit is this kind of most haunted house in America, which I think is a part of Knotworm that was presented at the Leon Biennale. Could you talk a bit about that work for me? The, the house doesn't actually feature in Knotworm. It's, it's in Integrated Mystery House and Trouble in Outer Heaven. But um, it sort of, it feels sort of part of this um, quite sort of like this figuration of being lost or sort of in this like tangled labyrinthine structure, which I think is really central to Knotworm. So in Knotworm, which was um, at Leon Biennial in 2019, he um, uses as the sort of central frame, I guess, this enormous 
machine called a tunnel boring machine, a TBM, which is sort of this uh, big circular thing which eats up earth and sort of you know spits it back out of its rear end um, and is used to build um, tunnels. So like this one in the work was used to um, extend London Underground's Northern Line to Battersea Power Station that's just opened. Um, so he sort of he uses that and out of it spills this root system, as he calls it, um, which um, then grows into all these um, toilets placed around it and sort of um, in his usual mode, just a whole lot of materials. Um, so actual roots and organic material, trash that he's picked up off the side of the West Way, dust that he's literally gathered. Like when Sam Keogh says he's gathering dust, he literally means he's gathering dust. And it all sort of comes together into this, into this mad, convoluted installation, this system, um, which in turn draws on a whole web of influences and um, sources, which range from a book by Doris Lessing about some squatters um, in London who sort of have to sort of deal with this living situation in which um, the council have filled the toilets with cement so that they can't use them, so that they're just living in a house full of buckets of shit. And um, also drawing from his studio, which is, as I said, sort of by um, the West Way. So um, quite a sort of fraught area um, near Grenfell. It used to be a community centre um, sort of by and for the community, um, but is now artist studios. So there's grappling with that. And then also bringing in um, sort of research into these various um, sort of organic systems, which might be disruptive to networks of power and landlordism such as Japanese knotweed, which can, you know, if it grows on your property, that's, you know, its value halved. Theresa May introduced like an ASBO for failure to control or to willfully plant it, so this illegal plant, because it can just tamper with infrastructure. Um, it's impossible to get rid of. And then knotworm comes from a combination of knotweed and shipworm, which he also talks about because it can bore through the wooden bows of, of ships and boats he looks back to like 1503 when uh, shipworms sort of destroyed two of Christopher Columbus's boats and uh, how, you know, shipworm helped Britain in the Spanish Armada because it just wore down the timbers of um, the Spaniards' boats. There are so many things which feed into these and that's very visibly materially. It's very easy as you sort of talk about them to get lost in this labyrinth of references as I think I just did, you sort of get kind of breathless thinking about how all these things tunnel through each other. The camera that he used to shoot the film on, so this wasn't a performance, it was a film which was then screened inside the um, installation. This film used a, an endoscopic camera um, to sort of worm through sewage systems and the body, it sort of like drains. It sort of implies this continuity between like the gut and the sewer. It sort of it's, it's very claustrophobic. It's very, like, too close for comfort. This sort of, this journeying through, I think, is very typical of his way of structuring narratives. It's, it's almost as if, you know, this, this methodology of the endoscopic camera is, like, present in a lot of his work anyway, even if not physically used in a video. Amazing. I think that's all we have time for. Thanks so much, Chloe. Thank you. Um, it was great to be here. That's it for tonight's Art Monthly Talk Show. Thank you to my wonderful guests, Chloe and Maria, and thank you for tuning in. Have a lovely evening and don't forget about our special offer to celebrate 45 years of Art Monthly. Head to our website, www.artmonthly.co.uk to find out more.